Morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. The Bible reading uh, for today is from Mark's Gospel, and it's chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of settling aside, setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he'd left the crowd and entered the house... His disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. And in saying this, Jesus declared that all foods are clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft... Murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Go crash, fire. Well, this morning we're going to spend some time thinking about that passage that's just been read for us by John. Uh, it's from the book of Mark, and we're working through this, series, this book uh, as the start of this year, and we're going to continue to as we lead into Easter. In Shakespeare's uh, play Macbeth, there's a moment. Uh, it's late in the play. Lady Macbeth and her husband have conspired to kill King Duncan, and her husband has felt great guilt, personal guilt, after the moment, but she has mocked her husband. But then a moment takes place late in Shakespeare's play, where Lady Macbeth is overheard walking the halls saying, out, damn spot, out, as she rubs her hands. She's trying to get rid of the guilt of having killed King Duncan. 
guilt. It, it seems like an idea that is better suited to a Shakespearean time uh, than to the modern world, particularly the idea of personal guilt. It's an, it's an interesting idea because in our passage this morning, which is read to us, guilt is one of the key ideas that's bubbling away. The Jewish leaders have been in conflict with Jesus uh, a number of times in Mark's account of Jesus' life up to now, and they're in conflict with him again, and they're conflict with him over the issue of ceremonial washing. We talk about washing all the time, washing our hands all the time, aren't we, at the moment? But this washing is of a different kind. They often washed their hands when they returned from the marketplace, not because they were biologically contaminated, like we might be worried about if we go to Coles or Woolworths at the moment. They were contaminated spiritually because they'd encountered groups of people who were not in God's community, in God's country, in God's church. And so the Jew Jews had very specific rules about how you washed your hands. And their problem was that Jesus' disciples were not abiding by those particular rules to try and ensure that they were ceremonially, that they were morally, that they were spiritually clean. This was not a biological issue. It was a spiritual issue. And in fact, while we at the moment are very much concerned with our biological welfare, the Bible continually maintains a concern for our spiritual welfare, for our spiritual cleanliness, so to speak. And this passage comes at the heart of that discussion. Now, when we talk about personal and moral guilt in our culture, uh, it's, it's confused. It's difficult. In fact, a lot of people don't want to assume personal moral guilt. I remember when I was about 21, I, I went on a trip to Africa and I did the whole safari thing. We were in a combi van and we traveled around as a group. And one, one, one trip while we were on a freeway and we had lots of time to talk about things, someone asked, what regrets do you have in your life? And we all went around the circle and confidently said, we have no regrets at all. We live with no regrets. Now, as you grow up, you realise, of course, uh, that you can't be someone who has no regrets. But certainly at that time, we're capturing a voice of the age. Carl Menninger wrote a very interesting book. He's a psychiatrist and he talked about the idea of sin and what became of sin. And essentially, he said the idea of moral or personal guilt is something that's really passed out of our language now. In our culture, we have a number of ways of dealing with the idea of moral, personal guilt, which don't make it personal anymore and don't make it moral. He, he cites, in fact, three particular ways that we get rid of moral, personal guilt. He's, first of all, he says, most guilt has now been shifted to the idea of a crime. So murder, rather than thinking of it as a personal moral failing, is now thought of it in terms of civil structures and civil discipline in terms of breaking a law. Another way that we sometimes get rid of uh, personal moral guilt, he says, is by turning it uh, from a moral thing into a, uh, into a sickness, an illness, a biological thing. So we've shifted uh, from taking responsibility for our guilt to looking for treatment for our guilt, to treatment for our failings, rather than seeing them as a product of our, our moral failing. And thirdly, he says, sometimes we think of our um, moral personal guilt rather than as a personal issue, as a collective responsibility. Do you ever find yourself saying, what has happened to our, our culture? What has happened to our society? 
Well, that's a moment where we have used the opportunity to shift from personal moral guilt, and that might be rightly so sometimes, I might say, but it is interesting that that's where we often go as a culture. We move from a personal sense of guilt to a collective sense of guilt. And Menninger says basically the idea of personal moral guilt has disappeared from our vocabulary, certainly, and even from our thinking. Uh, and one of the reasons why this has happened is because of a fundamental way that we think about, uh, we think about the, the self and the place of authority, the importance of the individual. I wonder if you've watched that uh, 80s film Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams in it. Uh, Robin Williams' character is a teacher, an English teacher, who gets a bunch of boys from a private school who are otherwise pretty much mistreated and forgotten and takes them under his wing and teaches them and he cares for them. And in this powerful moment, when one student appears to reflect a great deal of insecurity, Williams challenges him. He looks, gets him to look at a picture of Walt Whitman on, this, on, the, on the wall and he says to him, what does that say? And he can't, he can't come up with anything at the time. But then uh, Williams says to the student, he says these words, Mr. Anderson thinks that everything inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Well, I think you're wrong, says Williams. I think you have something inside you that is worth a great deal. That's, that's a small little moment in a movie which grabs the voice of our age. There's something inside you that's worth a great deal. Now, of course, there's a lot of truth to that. But what it reflects as well is our mindset in our culture, in our time and place, which says that with, from within all the good things come. And if that's the mindset, it's hard to have a place for personal moral guilt. You can understand a collective guilt because then you're not necessarily responsible for itself. You can understand a biological guilt because that's something that's abnormal. It doesn't come from within. It's imposed on you from outside. But personal moral guilt goes right against a culture which says, Something from within you is good and perfect and is what actually defines you. Within all of this, we start to have a sense
And uh, you're still with me, I'm glad. <laughs> we were talking about uh, Dead Poets Society. And uh, in that film, we were talking about the power of the individual, the beauty of the individual. Now, my point was simply this, that uh, in our culture and in our time, it's hard to believe in personal moral guilt if from within us come all the good things. Is that true though? If you actually reflect on our culture's vision of itself, is it really true? And I think that's not. I think deep down we all have a sense of personal inadequacy. We all have a sense of our failings. And think about when you go for a job. If you've ever been for a job interview, what do you do? Do you just turn up in your normal clothes? Of course not. We have to, we have to get changed. We brush our teeth. We comb our hair. We put down our best self, don't we? Because we have a sense that our ordinary self is not good enough. You think about the practice of virtue signaling. When someone gets very passionate about a particular issue which they believe in, I often think some of our passion in those moments is to hide over the things that we know aren't as good about ourselves. The reality is there is a lot of truth to personal moral guilt, even if we want to disregard it. There's a great scene at the end of Casino Royale, that James Bond film, uh, where uh, Vespa, who's James Bond's love interest, surprise, surprise, uh, has seen Bond killed someone. That's, of course, not unusual for Bond and his character, but for her, she's never experienced someone being murdered before. She didn't kill him, but she saw it happen, and we cross to a scene soon after the murder scene where she's in the shower, fully clothed, under a running shower, scrubbing at her hands. She's trying to get away the guilt, not the blood, of course, because there's no blood specifically on her hands, but she's trying to get rid of the guilt that has somehow penetrated deep into her. And each of us has that experience at times. Each of us has that experience where guilt has penetrated deep in and we have a sense that we cannot get rid of that. This is more than a biological issue. This is a deep personal issue. Now, here's the thing about this, this, these events in uh, Mark 7. The Pharisees are right. They're onto something. They believe in personal moral guilt. They believe that guilt needs to be washed away. And so the question that we have is why is Jesus, why is Jesus upset with them? Well, I think he's upset at them for two reasons. And the first is that they have forgotten that ultimately their guilt must be measured not against other people, horizontally, so to speak, but vertically. Guilt must be measured in, in relation to God. And that's why Jesus quotes the Isaiah passage. See that verse 7? He quotes from Isaiah 29. He quotes it and he says, they worship me in vain. Why do they worship in vain? Because ultimately they are worshipping using human measurements, not divine measurements, not God measurements. And so Jesus goes on and he talks about this this principle of Korban, this human tradition that they developed called Korban, where they withheld gifts to their parents in order to offer them at the temple. And Jesus says, there's a divine principle of honouring your father and the mother, which has been pushed to the side so that they could fulfil human traditions. In other words, they've taken God out of the guilty equation. In Psalm 51, uh, King David reflects he's confessing his sin of murdering a man and he starts by saying against you lord and you alone have i sinned his point is not uh, that 
he hasn't sinned against this other person, but he's overwhelmed by the divine reality, the reality that against God himself is his sin. And see, because the Pharisees have forgotten that, Jesus is angry with them. But he's also angry with them because they have forgotten to see the true nature of guilt, that it is not first and foremost an external thing, but an internal thing. And that's why he talks about food. He says, you know, you can eat all that you want, but it goes in and it comes out. It doesn't really affect your heart. It doesn't really affect your heart. It's, 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 a, it's a sense of guilt being something that goes deeper to our very motivations, to the very things that drive us at our core. It's not just an activity. This week I was watching um, a, a panel show on COVID-19 and they interviewed someone from Deloitte Access who was talking about the ramifications of this pandemic, uh, if and God willing, when it ends. And they, they talked very insightfully, actually. They said that in years to come, when all this is over, maybe we will learn something. But they weren't optimistic because they said, ultimately, humans have a way of forgetting things. It's amazing that even something as extraordinary as a pandemic imposed on us externally cannot change our hearts. I mean, some, some of us who were workaholics before the pandemic and had to work in offices in the city are still workaholics at home, aren't we? An external reality cannot change the internal. And Jesus' great anger at the Pharisees is that they have brought external things to bear on an internal problem. And Jesus' fury is because ultimately what they're offering to people doesn't deal with the heart issue. It doesn't deal with the heart issue. And we are the same. We are people who often think that an external thing will fix the internal reality. We come up with external religious traditions. We, we believe that if we practice certain things, that somehow that will deal with our personal moral guilt. Or we come up with external social behaviours, which we think will somehow make us better than we really are. But Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees is a challenge to us as well. That doesn't deal with the heart issue. doesn't deal with the heart issue. I mean, you might have become a really great parent, but have you in the process shifted your virtue from being a socially aware person? Have you become more internally focused? Are you focused on your kids at the cost of being focused at your neighbours? That's always a challenge for us, isn't it? Or maybe you're a really great employee, but because all your energy is being poured into that, into that area of your life, you've become a delinquent spouse. Part of what Jesus' point is, you can't, you can't fix your life perfectly. You might shift your focus of attention from one part of your life to another, and that part of your life might get better. But then the heart problem will bubble up in another area. And ultimately, Jesus' point his anger is because if we try to fix it externally by doing things to improve our moral condition, we're not, we're not serving God. We're not making it about God. We're making it about ourselves. In fact, if anything, we're just using God to serve ourselves. That's the great problem with religion. Religion is ultimately not about worshipping God, but using God to worship ourselves. And that is what Jesus is attacking in the Pharisees' thinking. That is why he does not want the crowd to follow the Pharisees. 
One author said this about false religion. He said, false religion attempts to make God our servant instead of recognizing that we are his. False religion attempts to make God our servant instead of recognizing that we are his. You see, the kind of heart that Jesus is talking about, the kind of heart that God wants from us is a heart that longs to serve him, to serve him, to bring everything before him, to offer everything up, including all of our practices, including all of our safe spaces, including all of our security, to bring it before God. That is what good religion is. That's what true religion is. That's what a pure heart does. It longs to serve God. But as we've seen, we have a capacity to hijack it. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Not first and foremost that God wants you or I to be a perfect servant with a truly servant heart, but that Jesus Christ was that servant. That he was the one who came to be the truly servant-hearted one, whose heart was truly servant-hearted. And he came to serve who? us. There's a moment in John's gospel, John 13. We talked about it a little bit actually in our youth group a few weeks back. It's a very interesting moment. Jesus is about to celebrate the last supper with his disciples. It's about a week or so, a few days before uh, his, his crucifixion. And they're in an upper room. And it was always a, it was always a tradition at the time that uh, it was a it was not a tradition. It was a domestic practice at the time that you would wash the people's feet when they came in. You'd get your lowliest servant to do it because, of course, their feet were filthy. They would wash their feet. And uh, having washed their feet, then they'd sit down and enjoy the meal. They come to this meal. Jesus himself gets down, takes out his outer garment, we're told, and washes the feet of the disciples. Extraordinary servant-hearted moment. Now, Peter, one of the one of the apostles, is outraged by this. There's no way that Jesus could wash his feet. What extraordinary circumstances would those require? But Jesus says, no, no, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless I serve you, Peter, you cannot be with me. You see, Peter needed to realise that he actually needed Jesus first and foremost to wash him. And Jesus wasn't just talking about feet. He was talking about guilt. He was talking about washing away guilt. You see, the thing that the Pharisees had failed to understand was that the answer to their moral cleansing, to their cleansing, their dealing of their personal guilt was right there in front of them and they were missing it. You know, I have young kids. If you're watching along and you haven't met me before, I have young kids. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. I I love having kids, but I must say one of the things that no one ever told me before I had kids, but which I actually really despise about parenting is the after-dinner cleanup. I've got a picture for you. Uh, this is my boy, Sammy. Isn't he gorgeous? Uh, he's a bit older now, but this is Sammy soon after he learnt to uh, eat with um, soft foods. And let me tell you something. If you haven't had the chance to do it, cleaning up a kid after dinner is possibly the worst task because what happens is you have eaten your food like a good adult and kept it off you and on the plate and then in your stomach. Your child, of course, hasn't. Uh, so then you go to them with a wet rag, attempting to wipe off the yogurt and the cereal or the spaghetti or whatever it is, and what happens is they grab you 
and they mush that food through your hair and across your face and across your shirt. And by the end, what happens is they come out clean and you leave dirty. Now, it's a, it's a simple and trivial example, but it's essentially what happens in the gospel, you see, where Jesus Christ cleanses us deeply, wonderfully. But here's the thing. He cleanses us at great cost to himself. The Bible says that ultimately Jesus offers us the kind of moral cleansing, the deep removal of our deep personal guilt at great cost to himself. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, uh, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, who was pure and perfect, took on all the sin of the world so that we, so that we by faith might have the purity of a son or daughter of God. You see, the gospel is about that kind of deep cleansing. It takes away the deep guilt that you keep returning to, which drives you to do things which you wish you didn't do, which makes you self-righteous at times. The gospel takes away that guilt. It frees you from a sense that you have to somehow keep proving yourself and in the process hurting and alienating other people and making them secondary. That's the power of the gospel. And if you haven't heard it and you're hearing it today for the first time, that power is available to you because Jesus Christ came to offer it, not just to me, not just to the St. Stephen's members, but to you, if by faith you would experience it and accept it. And, you know, Jesus says something very important at the end of this little moment of teaching. He says, you know, out of the heart come all the evil things, and he gives us a great list of things. Jesus, you see, is not advocating uh, a religion which cares nothing about the suffering of other people or the hardships of other people. No, he wants people who are genuinely transformed who don't just put something on on the outside for a moment only to abuse and use someone else down the track in the process. Now, he wants people who are sincere, who are not hypocrites, who what they say is what they do, who match what they do with what they say. And he says the key is getting your heart fixed. Now, if you get your heart fixed, if you get your heart fixed, your life will be changed as well. And that is what Jesus Christ is offering something that goes deeper than the, the threats of a pandemic and the biological threats of life and goes to our heart and remakes us into the kind of people that we know we really should be deep down, the kind of people that God originally created us to be. And that's my prayer for you. I'm going to pray for us now. And after that, we're going to sing a, a great hymn about Jesus' free offer. Uh, the amazing grace that he offers. But let me pray for us before we finish. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and was burdened with our sin so that we can be freed from it. We pray that this morning you would transform our hearts as we believe that truth and so transform our lives as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.